podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Fear of God, episode four. We are very excited to be here. We're two people talking about the intersection between faith and horror. That is the basis of our show. I am Reed Lackey. And I'm Nathan Rouse. Sorry, Reed, I was hung up there for a second because I was like, well, of course <laughs> we're two people talking about faith and horror. Uh, uh, to further to further clarify and maybe speak more highly of our relationship than, than you, we are two friends talking about faith and horror. That is a good point. Um, that is a good point. We've been friends for a while now, and I just sort of tend to forget that because... <laughs> and just refer to us as people. We're just two folks shooting the bull on the old interwebs. (laughs) So, but yeah, what are we we talking about today, Reed? Well, if you were here for us uh, for our conversation last week, we started talking about James Wan's *The Conjuring* in 2013, and this year, as we're recording this, 2016, uh, we were privy to a sequel to that, *The Conjuring 2*, and that's the topic for today. It was a, and not just this year. I mean, like what, three weeks ago? It's, It's recent. Oh yeah, it was very, very recent. Well. I should say that by the time listeners hear this, it will probably be more like two months. So yeah, you're probably more. It'll probably right. be a couple of months. You were more accurate than me, <laughs> as is usually the case. No, oh, zinger. Um, but no, like uh, so. The, I mean, the, the first Conjuring made a boatload of money. I mean, they they made so much money, and uh, and so naturally the studios loved that. They've done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pardon my interruption. That was that was very not to get political. That was very a Trumpism. You said they made. A boatload of money. They made so much money. You know, that, that, that was so, so <laughs> imprecise. <laughs> you know, all the money was made with The Conjuring. So naturally, they beget a sequel. <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, the film, the first Conjuring cost like $20 million to make and made somewhere in the neighborhood of $320 million. That's all the money. Yep. That's all the money. They were naturally going to make a sequel to that. And um, and so I I, I want to kind of defer to you. You I saw the Conjuring uh, opening weekend, um, and you only just recently saw it. So so tell me what you what you thought about it. What was that? <clears throat> sure. Well, I, I want to introduce this topic too. By I, I'm a fan of um, uh, uh, the Watch. It's a podcast. Two guys, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, who you can find on Twitter. But I was listening to them recently, and and they made a funny comment about how. We live in an era and reflecting on our own childhood, you know, and both you and I are in our mid-30s and how our children will never know the feeling of pining for a sequel to a to a property, you know, huh, like right, right. when we were growing up, it's like, oh man, I loved such and such. Wow, it'd be so cool to see that world further explored, man, you know, the, just on the purely on the notion of sequels and shared universes and franchises, we are at max 
capacity. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I, I, I sort of stumbled into this thought too. Like the Conjuring is a good example of this because as we referenced last week, the Conjuring 1 itself spun off, which I haven't seen, and you said you hadn't, the, the movie Annabelle, which I think was kind of right. poorly received, but also May itself. I was on Wikipedia last night after seeing the second Conjuring movie, May itself beginning a sequel. So there you go. Yeah. You know, shared yeah. universes everywhere in sight for good or ill. So as far as The Conjuring 2 itself, you know, just on a pure, like, um, how did I feel about it? You know, last week we talked about Conjuring 1. I think Conjuring 1 gets a whole lot right. Um, you know, Conjuring 2, there is a lot to like about it, and I want to honor those things, but I'll get to what I don't like first. It feels very confused. Um, it feels mm. like it's not quite sure the story it wants to tell and or thinks that it is telling. Um, you and I uh, spent a few minutes after I saw it talking about it and, and specifically noting your interpretation of the nun ghost that sort of plagues Lorraine in this right. second film, that they even retcon as as the thing that plagues her sort of, right, in the, the, the memory that's referenced in the first movie, you know, when she yes, goes right, right. into seclusion, isolation for eight days. So they sort of allude that that's the same sort of, at least what this figure represents to her and, and the potential death of uh, Patrick Wilson's character. And, and again, for our listeners, we always, I mean, at this point, we don't need to say spoiler alert, but we're going to talk about this stuff in depth. That's what you're here for. That's what we're here Absolutely. for. So, yeah. um, you know, they, they sort of make this an ongoing thread and yet the characters that they are aiding in this second film um, have no relationship and much like the first film, you know, the first film starts with this kind of teaser of the Annabelle doll that leads into the Perone family and um, how the Warrens get kind of swept up in their story. Well, similarly here, you've got this family in Britain, you know, let's moment of silence for the Brexit here. Um, but uh, had not, that yeah. definitely had not happened in 1976 when this movie takes place, who are being <laughs> assaulted by some sort of entity. Um, and the Warrens get swept up in it. And so the point I'm trying to make is, this nun figure becomes present in that story um, in, in the, in the British family's story late in the film that seems to sort of connect to a, or not seems does in terms of the script connect to an experience Lorraine has in her own home. Right. And so the point I was trying to make is it feels like the narrative is a bit confused. Like we are sort of meant to, buy into this sort of isolated story of them helping this family. And yet, and, and, and again, this is sort of a sequel conversation, but it's that thing that you can sort of, that trap you can sort of fall prey to in the, the world of sequels where the Warren characters are very strong characters and we really like them. And I personally really like, you know, uh, those characters. I think, you know, Vera Farmiga is just killing it. I mean, she, yeah. she kind of takes what can be pretty, straightforward material and just, you know, makes it sing, transcends what's on screen with her performance. I mean, just very effervescent. I mean, she just, she, she just really makes this material, uh, uh, sing to, to redundant, to, to make myself redundant there. And yet the sequel itis is, well, now you've got these sort of mythological characters, you've got your Mulder and Scully. So you've got to kind of raise the stakes for them. And so the movie presents this story that has this isolated experience with this family 
well, you tied them in. Well, now it ties into the, I don't know. I, I felt a little like the narrative was confused. Um, didn't quite know what it was trying to say. Um, that's something I didn't like about it. Well, let me jump in. Let me jump in right there. Um, uh, cause I, cause I, I actually do agree with you. I, I liked Conjuring 2, uh, even though you're expressing that you did like it. There's a lot of like, a lot to like about it. Um, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did, but I want to specifically reference what you were talking about. And, uh, before I say that, I could go on for hours and hours of my adoration for Vera Farmiga. She is a wonderful actress. She's probably my current favorite working actress. Um, I, I really just been consistently impressed by what she does, whether that be Bates Motel or even the very first thing I saw her in, which was, uh, the Paul Walker film Running Scared, um, a small role in that, but I thought she did a great job with it. And that's when she first hit my radar. She actually even directed a film, uh, called Higher Ground. Yeah. I've seen Higher Ground. Oh, it's very interesting. Um, so, so I really love her as an actress and as an artist. I think she's wonderful. Um, but, uh, in comparing the two films, Conjuring and Conjuring 2, see, in Conjuring 1, the Bathsheba character, the, the malevolent spirit, sort of attacked this Peron family. And then when the Warrens got involved, Bathsheba came and, like, you know, sort of attacked their daughter because they were involved in this Peron case. Sure. With, with Conjuring 2, it feels like that was kind of reversed because of how they set it up. And again, we get a little mini case up front with the Amityville thing, which I thought that was really cool that they're bringing in the Amityville case in, uh, you know, we talked at great length last week about the based on a true story trope and how we feel about that. But in real life, the Lorraine, uh, Lorraine and Ed, uh, the Warrens, not the Lorraine, sorry about that. The Warrens were involved in the Amityville case that was documented. So I thought it was interesting that they brought that into, uh, into this film, but in contrast to the first one where they get involved with the Bathsheba character and then Bathsheba attacks them, it almost seems structurally like this character, this this uh, uh, this evil Marilyn Manson-looking... Uh, Vanek? Is that what it says? Van- Valak, actually. Valak is, uh, is the name. And uh, so that character kind of attached itself to Lorraine Warren, and then it almost sets up this entire thing happening in Enfield in London that as if that was an extension of the attack on the Warrens. So it kind of reversed it. Which which is why I would say it's a little confused, because if, if what you're saying is meant to be how we're supposed to perceive it, I feel like that's a very... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I agree with you. I agree with you on that, because because it's it, I don't think it's as focused narratively to think, you know, from the first one, they get involved, and then there's a threat to them because they get involved. But in this one, it seems almost as if the entire thing revolved around them and the the... the family at Enfield um, seem a bit more like pawns in that in that um, scenario versus in the first one where the Perone family really um, were the focal point. They were the, they were the ones who needed rescuing, whereas in Enfield they, they seem a bit more uh, ancillary. They seem a bit more like they're just swept up in this thing going on with the Warrens. So I can see where if somebody said, you know, as you, as, as you're, kind of alluding to, if not directly saying, if if that detracted the enjoyment for the film uh, for people, I certainly wouldn't disagree because I completely understand it. And I do, I do see that contrast there. And I think it's a weaker choice on the second film's part to go that route. Well, that and like, you know, and I do have things I like. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But one other thing that, you know, is is what made me like Conjuring 1 so much that is sort of dismissed with in Conjuring 2 is Conjuring 1 the extreme majority 
of the things you're seeing on screen are practically executed. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, whether it's the exorcism, whether it's some of the more ghosty type things, it's still physically happening in material space. Whereas The Conjuring 2, okay, it's clear you've got a bigger budget. There's more CGI going on. And for me, it's just the plague of, of, of heightened CGI elements that, you know, I can't, it's, it's harder to connect with. I, you know, for instance, you know, a perfect example of this in The Conjuring 2 is the, and, and when it almost jumped ship for me, honestly, was the sort of crooked man entity that, that roams the neighbor house. The neighbor's house. Oh. Once that happens, I was like, "Yeah, uh, I don't know. Just I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not even buying what I'm watching." And um, you know, kind of really derailed a little bit for me. You know, but something I want to do address that that I did love um, is while yes, because of the sequel nature of this film, and yes, you are sort of heightening the mythology of these characters, the, the Ed and Lorraine. I think that wouldn't work as much without uh, Patrick Wilson and, and old Vera, whose laudits we are, are praising here. Um, I think, man, they just nail it. Yes. It's something I love that the movie does, that your uh, expansive knowledge with the horror genre may be able to speak to more than mine. But what I have in my notes is these aren't just action heroes. They aren't ghostbusters. What is powerful to me about these characters, especially as their role gets heightened and made more potent in the second film is, and, and this will, we can pick back up when we're talking about the themes, but something in, in the conversation of liking versus disliking elements of the movie. I love that it feels like these characters aren't there to combat a spirit. That's their secondary purpose that what they are there for. And this is what, if, if anything weighs the scales in favor of me liking the movie in spite of all of the things that I do think don't work. It's these characters as they exist are, and this is piggybacking on, on conversation from last week, they're there to do good and to yeah. help and, and, and not help in a, well, let's pat you on the back and wish you well, but in a like, you know, as, as illustrated by the conversation that Lorraine has with the, his name is Morris Gross. I don't remember what his actual title is in the movie, but the bearded or mustachioed character that's helping them, right, the family, right. the first liaison initially on the ground, you know, they have this kind of potent conversation. But what becomes evident is they're just trying to do good. They're trying to make good in the world by diminishing the wickedness of the world. And I found that very powerful and made me just really buy into at least, at least for the technical elements that I didn't care for, the, the, the point of the movie and the intention of the movie I could really get behind. I agree with you. I think that that's something that is a real strength of these films. I said last week and, and, uh, and you mentioned that it was much more prevalent in this film that, um, you know, however you feel about the characters of the Warrens in real life, whether you consider them to be scam artists or hucksters or whatever you want to say, um, the fictional version that James Wan and the screenwriters and, uh, Vera and Patrick have created, uh, I, I just adore and I love their mission. I'm so on board. We're kind of leading with the, the, the things that we didn't really care for compared to the first one. Uh, there were a couple of things that I thought were very effective, but one sort of, uh, final note for me on, on some negatives. Um, I did think that while both films have some conveniences, some things that happen like, oh, that's a little convenient. 
The second one has many more of them than the first one. The 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 second one, particularly the scene where they're about to leave on the train, and then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, like, oh, it's, I mean, and and the way that whole scene played out, like, I almost wish that scene wasn't in the movie because the way that whole scene played out, I knew where it was going right from the yeah. beginning. They didn't need all of that, but they but they made it as if it was this big reveal. I think that was one moment where I was like, mm, it's a little a little heavy handed that you would, that you would need to hit that moment so hard. But that having been said, I thought there were a few things that were really effective. I am sorry, but uh, people may laugh at me about this, but I'm, but that nun, that whole sequence That's where haunting. she, Oh, when she has the dream sequence or the vision or whatever it is where she finds out the demon's name and, you know, the little girl goes in there and is like, Mom, who is that? That whole sequence, I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I was yep, sitting there praying yep. in the theater like, dear Lord, help me. Like, that is so scary. Yep. Uh, and I was even, even though you you kind of referenced it as a bit uh, as a bit over the top, man, the crooked man got me right. <laughs> a couple of times. That's a really, you know, I will say this. We, we praised last week, we praised James Wan's ability to expand the tension and just sort of... Uh, really uh, let the tension be prolonged, I think, as a masterful piece of directing. And this this may have been present in the script, but even if it was, a lesser director wouldn't have done it this effectively. The sequence with the fire truck in the tent yep. is yep. is almost one entire shot, and that tension just continues to build, and it's one of the most effective scare moments in the entire film. I, I, I'm, I think I'm jumping a little ahead. We usually talk about scariest moments. And, uh, and so I, let's, I, let's, let's do that. I want to I throw one last thing of, of thing I really liked in there, and that's I love the visual of the whole sequence of Patrick Wilson looking away from Janet in the chair as she oh, morphs man. into Bill and back. That was really well done, very effective. That was so great. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really loved that part. And so, yeah, let's let's go ahead and jump into – um, our, you know, what scared you moment, you know, I think I've got two of them specifically. Again, I feel like overall the movie was a little less in terms of just the, the, in, in total was a little less scary to me, um, than sure. one, but there were a couple of real specific moments. Um, and one of them you've just sort of alluded to is, and I, what I wrote down was the screaming teepee, you know, the, the huh. when, yeah. when the little boy, I don't know if that's Billy or whatever his name is, but you know, the, the, he sends the fire truck back into the little tent at the end of the hall and follows it down there and it comes back out. And then just this, Oh my gosh, this malevolent shriek, you know, kind of post-production layered screaming comes out of it. And man, that's a, that's a jump moment. If ever there was one, um, no I've got one more, but I'm in- interested if, if you've got other, uh, others on deck too. Well, I have said, and I think I still feel this way, the, the hand clap sequence from the first one notwithstanding, I think that whole sequence with the, with the nun in the, in the room, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and kind of coming to possess the painting and everything, that is super effective. And, yep. and it might be my favorite sort of scare moment from either film, actually. And maybe that's just because of how familiar I am now with the hand clap sequence. So the nun moment is a little bit more, uh, fresh to me, which is probably why mm-hmm. it's greater in my mind. But, um, but that whole sequence is terribly effective. Vera Farmiga sure. sells, sells crap out of it. She does such a good job because you know, she's not really looking at, you know, these, these CG effects, but she attaches such believability. Well, and they do so well in that they do so well in that scene when, a, her proximity to the painting as it's hanging on the oh, wall. Oh, yeah. You know, she's so close to it. 
and the lamp that's right there like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll agree with you. Like that's not a jump moment per se, but in terms of just the ratcheting tension, you know, just this back and forth that's happening between her and this painting, but initially all it is for two thirds of that sequence is just the painting. Yes. Um, but she keeps approaching the lamp and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, uh, we don't have to spend but a second here, but you know, the, the nun figure feels like in the conversation of what works or doesn't work, it feels like they fell in love with a a creature design. Yes. And needed to make it happen. And so from that standpoint, it's like, yeah, it's terrifying to look at and definitely ominous and menacing on screen, but there's not a whole lot to it. Um, in terms of uh, jump moments for me, another one that was you know, purely in the make you jump out of your seat category is, uh, I think this is the, the end of the sequence where Janet's homesick and the oh, remote my keeps gosh, going amiss. Yes. Um, that, that ends with this real abrupt, but, you know, an unbelievably frightening moment of who you come to discover is Bill Wilkins, but this old man figure in his face just fills the screen and yells my house or this is my house or something. Oh man, that one. Yeah. That did a number on me. I, I almost uh, spilled my popcorn all over everybody in proximity to me because I jumped (laughs) so high of my chair during that moment. Well, I, I almost spilled my bladder, you know, so between that, you know. We're <laughs> uh, and what we're talking about here, like as we're referencing these scary moments, like lest, you know, I know we led with a lot of negatives and I don't mind that because I think there's some definite, uh, there's some substance there. But but lest we forget, James Wan is a good director and he knows sure. how to make a good scary movie. And this movie has some really good scares in it. I know that some people online and, and sort of in the, in the, even in the critic circle, they kind of were like, they're, oh, well, yeah, it's kind of the same as the first one. And they sort of blase, sort of dismiss it. I did not have that experience. I think if you liked the first one, you might like the second one slightly less, but I think you will still really like it and really be glad you saw it because James Wan and, and really the entire creative team involved just knows what they're doing to tell a good, scary story. And it's effective. And, uh, and I think it's got a lot for horror fans to really sink their teeth into. That's very valuable. I love this franchise. Like the, the, well, I want, I want to introduce an idea here that deviates from the pure technicals of, of the movie on screen, but also isn't quite in the sort of spiritual conversation yet either. And, you know, the sentence you just said kind of teed up this idea that I, I jotted a note down on this. And some of this is informed by just, you know, other, other podcasts and, and, commentary I'm consuming about pop culture and stuff. And like, I watched this movie and couldn't escape the feeling of, and again, I think the conjuring one sort of earns its place, uh, not just as a movie, but as a horror movie and just kind of elevates the typical fare. This one, I feel like takes the character beats of the first one and kind of raises the stakes a bit more don't it doesn't quite achieve the scare factor for me or the overall tension or, or or foreboding that the first one does but the question i came away with was like why do these have to be movies um mm. you know I, I understand the notion that uh, where i'm going with this is this sort of peak tv sort of era we're in right now where man that the 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 um, there's almost too much good tv yeah you know like you just can't get to everything and 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 there, there's so much tv period and then what is being produced, generally speaking, is a lot more high quality. But I watch a movie like this, and this would not be a thought that I would have had after just the first Conjuring movie. But after this one, I kept thinking, like, this could be, you know, I think of, like, um, Sherlock, you know, the British Sherlock. You know, these kind oh, of yeah. feature-length, 
technically they call them seasons, but they're just kind of three feature length movies for lack of a better way to put it. And I think sure there's no, I mean, clearly uh, a Vera Farmiga does Bates Motel. So it's not like there's an aversion to the world of television. I just, I, I watched this movie and maybe this is a problem with me as a viewer that, you know, everything has to be bombastic and blockbuster or not earn its place, which I don't believe and don't think at all. But I think in this world we're living in where every single property is serialized, I watched this and I thought, why? I would enjoy this. These two characters, um, as portrayed by these two actors, I would enjoy this on a more routine basis. And thus, why do you need two years to get back to it? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that thought resonated with you at all or, or if you think those kind of things watching these movies these days. Well, I do. Uh, here's what I'll say in response to that. Like, while I agree with you that I'd love to see more of these characters and I'd love to see them on a more regular basis, I will say that, you know, on pure practical levels, I'm sure budget plays into that. I'm sure the budget for an episode of TV, even for an episode of Sherlock, which, yes, is ostensibly a, a feature length episode, uh, I think the budget probably plays into, into account for that. And also, if it was TV, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I would miss the fact that I saw this on a big screen. Because God, I love the experience of seeing sure, this on a big sure. screen. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with either of those points. Well, I'll disagree with the budget one a little bit. I know you're not, you know, you haven't jumped into the Game of Thrones world, which is totally fine and, and oh, right, whatever. But but in terms of pure budget, I don't think that conversation really exists anymore. Um, I mean, it does. Hear me, it's all a little bit relative. But you know, look at like I watched The Conjuring two and think. Yes, there's a, there's a, there was a glut of CGI on the screen, but there was nothing in that movie in terms of the story told that could not have been told on a small screen or at yeah. least in a more, you know, you're, if you're going for serialization, you know, let's, let's, let's go all the way and, and, and put it in people's homes. Like, I mean, The Walking Dead, you know, I mean, it, it, when it does the horror right, it does it really right. Um, so budget, the budget of that show is purely the sheer volume of actors you've got on screen and sort of <laughs> right, the ensemble. Right. Um, but you can, I think the budget question, you know, it's, it's just an interesting world we're living in culturally, pop culture wise, you know, like I watch yeah. this movie and think, I think these would be far more interesting going to the theater raises the expectations too, which is sort of a, an unintended dismissal of TV because I think TV has so raised the bar in terms of what it's putting out. Well, and I will tell you, anyway, just some food for thought. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And I will tell you and our listeners in case they don't know about it, that uh, it's ironic you mentioned TV in relation to conjuring too, because the, the haunting that happened at Enfield is actually one of the most well-documented that they say this in the, in, I think in the beginning of the film. Uh, but this is actually yeah. true. The haunting at Enfield is one of the most documented real life paranormal cases on the books and not that long ago, earlier this year, uh, the BBC produced a, a three-part sort of mini-series uh, called The Enfield Haunting that the Warrens are not even a character in, but that character, uh, Morris Gross, is the star of. And uh, that it was produced for TV. We we watched As in, it. Is it, a, is it is it a scripted sort of fictionalized, or is it docu documentary? Style? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fictionalized. It's not a documentary. Uh, it's fictionalized story. Maurice Gross is the is the main character, and uh, and it's very good. Um, I mean, it and the Conjuring are are setting out to do two entirely different things. But it's just interesting to me that you brought up the desire for TV. There actually exists a a three part TV miniseries called The Enfield Haunting that I think you can stream right now. Uh, I might be wrong about that because I haven't looked into it, but um, but yeah, it's it exists and it's very good. 
uh, it would be a completely different conversation and maybe too long to take to to describe the differences between that and Conjuring 2 and, and how I felt about each one. But I will say that it's worth your time and it's, it's worth seeking out, especially if you want to lo- learn a little bit more about some of the finer details of what happened in this specific haunting without the focus on the Warrens that Conjuring 2 gives you. Um, it's, uh, it's, it was very good. And I think too, just to sort of close up that loop on, on the TV versus film conversation, I think that it is, uh, I ask myself often if I read a book that is popular and that I liked a lot. And then of course they're making a movie out of it. I heard, uh, he's a very divisive personality, uh, these days, but Orson Scott Card, the writer, when he, you know, his book Ender's Game was, talked about being made into a movie for years and years and years. And he finally just said, like, why does it have to be a movie? Like, it's a book. You right. can read the book. You can experience that. Why does it have to be a movie? And I think that's a an interesting thing to think about is, like, why do we have to have it be in this medium versus that medium or what the differences are there? And I think that while there's definitely some fun avenues to walk down, I think I would more personally land on the side of, well, this is what we have. We have a movie franchise. We don't have a TV franchise yet, but we have a movie franchise. And as it exists, I'm really fond of the first two entries. And if they wanted to make three, four, and five, and they were of this same caliber or, or quote, close to the same caliber, then I will buy my movie ticket every single time and spend the sure, money gladly because sure. I'm really enjoying the fact that they're that they exist. And uh, one final note on the TV thing that you're going to laugh about, and I'm probably not going to cut this out. Uh, It was announced that uh, James Wan, ladies and gentlemen, the director of Saw, the director of Insidious, the director of Conjuring 1 and Conjuring 2, is going to be directing the pilot of the new TV show reboot of MacGyver because he is such a big fan of MacGyver, the TV show. You want to know two funny things about you saying that? What? Is when you started to say, you're going to laugh at me for this, the word that popped into my head was MacGyver. This shows how well I know you. Um, <laughs> so, first, I had no idea that Juan was associated with that. Uh, what you, I don't know if you know this too. And again, I would have to do some digging to validate this. But I saw recently where the, they they've had to retool the entire pilot because <laughs> it just isn't getting received well. As, oh my gosh! You know, that's funny. you you would be disheartened by it, but I would say, well, of course, it's not being received. Well. <laughs> it's MacGyver. Why bother? You know? Oh my gosh! Which, yeah, I, yeah, that's a. That's a subject that I'm sure our fans of both uh, faith and horror do not care a lick about. But man, I love me some nope. MacGyver. Um, but uh, but uh, so so to kind of uh, bring us into a conversation about some of the themes that I think Conjuring Two explores versus Conjuring One. And I w- I do want to try, even though it touches on some similar things that Conjuring One talked about about the relationship with the Warrens and and uh, the, their strength as characters and as a couple. Uh, I don't necessarily want to retread any of that, but one specific thing that stood out to me in Conjuring 2 is this idea of of the name of the spirit holding some key significance. And I thought mm-hmm. that to me, I don't know what other themes might have jumped out to you, but that to me was one of the most prominent things of interest when I was coming out of that movie is the is sort of the power of a name. And, um, you know... It, it, uh, listeners hopefully know by now, and eventually we'll stop qualifying this, but we're going to spoil everything. Conjuring 2 is a more recent movie, so I want to be a little bit more sensitive to that. But um, but it is, uh, you know, we're going to be spoiling everything possible about, about this film. If we haven't already. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, the climactic moment of the film revolves around the fact that Lorraine Warren has learned the name of this malevolent entity. 
And at having learned the name in in this story, that gives her power over this over this creature, uh, over this spirit. And um, I thought that as a story beat was very interesting because I do think, uh, you know, obviously in, in, in biblical contexts, names meant a great deal to uh, not even in terms of spiritual or supernatural significances, like what you were called as a person. Your name mm-hmm. was tied to your identity and even to a degree to your destiny. Uh, Abram is told by God that his name would be Abraham, which is father of many nations. And, and uh, Jacob, which the, that word means deceiver or supplanter, uh, his name is changed to Israel. Uh, and that's a moment of great significance. In the New Testament, Simon's name is changed to Peter. Uh, and uh, he, to the degree that he's now even referred to as Simon Peter. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to me, this idea of the significance of a name and that knowing the name of something gives you a certain degree of control or a certain degree of power over it. And my only real thought on that of substance before I throw it to you is I think there is a truth, no matter what your faith background is, there is a power to what you call something, what you describe something as positions it in your heart in a way that will affect how it affects you, if that makes sense. That if you if you say of something, well, this is a disaster and this is going to be terrible, then I think your stress level is going to be increased, your anxiety is going to be increased, your ability to overcome whatever challenge you're dealing with is, is going to be increased or decreased. But if you say of something, this is not a big deal. We've got this. We, you know, we, we can handle this. Then those stress factors go down. Those anxieties levels go down. I don't know that I would take this idea on a personal belief of mine to the fullest extent of, well, there are some people in the Christian culture, uh, at least my Christian culture growing up, who would literally say, if you had the sniffles or if you had a headache, don't say you have, don't say you have a cold. Don't say you have a headache because then, then that speaks it into existence. There's that idea of speaking something into existence. And without being completely dismissive to a bunch of people that I love, I did find that idea a bit, a, a bit <laughs> nonsensical. Um, no, at the same time, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be offensive sure, if somebody sure. hears that and believes that. And because I think there is, don't forget what I said at the beginning is that I, I, I do think that there is a significance to what you call something and what you title it in your heart means that it's going to affect you in different ways. But I did find it interesting in The Conjuring 2 how that is the hinge point, is that she knows this name, and because she knows this name, as she puts it, that gives her dominion over this evil spirit. And uh, I just want to know in general some of, your, some of your reactions or thoughts to that idea of you know, what we call something, giving it or taking away its power in our hearts and minds. What do you, what do you generally think about sure. that? Sure. I mean, I think, I think that... Um... I think that's a, a sort of powerful through line that honestly, for me, the movie kind of makes it a little bit of an afterthought that, that could have a bit more nuance to it. But, but I think the, the point you're, you're identifying, and I'm just stealing my own language here, is, is identity. I mean, in the movie, like once they determine in their sort of contrived train sequence with the audio files what this thing is, Right, a sort of demonic entity. Now that doesn't matter that much. It's it's who is this, you know? And so I think the question of what is in a name, 
you know, it's, it has less to do with, with what than with who. And I think in our, our spiritual lives, you know, there's a lot of implications to that, you know, whether it's believing lies about our own identity. Right. You know, and I think, I think of, I think of the dove descending on Jesus at his baptism and this is my son, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased, you know, and, and, and like, you know, again, take, taking themes that are arising in the movie and sort of applying them to more uh, practical spiritual examples, but just, you know, when you are feeling assailed by false beliefs about yourself, you know, oh, yeah. and, and for those, for those of us who would assign a, a Judeo-Christian identity to ourselves, being able to jar yourself out of that with, with a remembrance of your own identity that you are beloved. Well, and I would even, I, I apologize for cutting you off, but, but uh, like I, I would even say if you didn't necessarily even hold to a Christian faith, that idea could have a psychological reality of saying like, well, I'm a loser right? or I, or, or, you know, or I'm lame or I'm, I'm this or I'm that. And then you start to associate yourself with that identity well, now, now in your in your psychological framework, to a degree, that's how you see yourself, mm-hmm. and that's how you operate in the situations that you're in. Versus, I can do this. I have I have in within myself the uh, you know the potential or the capabilities to to overcome this. And we see people. We hear stories about this frequently about people with physical or mental disabilities who achieve phenomenal things, sure, outstanding sure. things. Because they will not allow themselves to be necessarily defined by those by those labels, and I'm not even somebody who is very resistant to the idea of labels. I think um, you know establishing categories for a thing is not necessarily a bad practice, unless, as we're talking about here, you associate certain potentials or lack of potentials to those categories. Sure. When you say like, because you are from this class or because you are of this gender or because you are this thing, uh, disabled or you are whatever, then you are not going to accomplish X, Y, Z. I think that is the flaw. I don't think it's necessarily a flaw to acknowledge I am this thing. Which is interesting because I feel like, you know, while definitely following some some crumbs and a, a rabbit trail that's a little farther afield than you may have intended, like you just talked about categorization and I'll piggyback on a conversation we had about The Conjuring 1 and that's the femininity of this movie. Like, oh, right. You know, e- even down to the, the once it's revealed, even though it's given visual context earlier in the film, the entity itself is of a feminine nature. Oh, I mean, oh, it's, right, it's right. a, it's a nun, you know? And, and right. I think, I think it's of interest that in many ways, by the end of the movie, Patrick Wilson is sort of the damsel in distress, if you will. I mean, he is trying to help the, oh, the, he the is. girl as they're potentially plummeting to their own deaths. Um, and it's, it's Lorraine who comes and vanquishes this entity who you could make a, have a conversation about gender and, and demonic entities, but who at least <laughs> is given the form of uh, what we would typically identify as female. And that's a nun. Right. So, you know, kind of, kind of subverting some identity politics there, you know, in terms of, of common gender expression and, and masculinity and femininity and um, switching gears a little bit. I, something that I think the movie, even though it kind of gives more lip service to it than I think and maybe you'll disagree with that. I, I don't know that it dives deep into any of the themes that really 
brooches, but I mean, there's this very presence uh, or very strong presence of like skepticism versus belief. You know, I mean, right. I thought that in the very first time you see the Warrens on the talk show. Oh, right. right. I mean, it's clear this this person is there to dispel everything they're saying, and and again, you you can make this case all day long in the real world. Well, is what they did real or not? That's not the point I'm trying to make, and I don't think that's the point the movie's trying to make. Really, you know, then in in the infield scene, the infield sequence of events, you've got Franca Potent from uh, the Bourne films who, bless her heart, she has given nothing to work with other than uh, be cardboard yeah. and dispel everything they say. Like, right. you know, it's, 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 it's a very one note sort of um, character, but which is unfortunate, you know, you're right. Yeah, it is, which, which is meant to be the foil to what they're doing. And I just think, I think there's an interesting case to be made that the movie flirts with that not just, that it's almost not interested in the conversation of skepticism versus belief, even though I'm introducing that conversation here. Like, Mm. it's almost less interested in that than just sort of making sure we're aware, well, yeah, I mean, this is something to be considerate of. But I think the bigger, for me, for me, this is what I took away, um, you know, is once more banging that drum of of goodness. And and the note I took um, as we divert you know, from the skepticism first belief into what I think the movie's really after. And if it says anything well, I think says this very well through, and it, it helps that it's through Vera and her performance. But, you know, that I keep coming back to that conversation she has with Morris Gross. And, and the note I took was these people are trying to restore wholeness yeah. in the world, you know, and, and sort of create goodness and, and, and not just in this flowery, oh, you know, you know, kind of wishy-washy sort of hippy-dippy way, but in this very real, like, there is there is something monstrous oppressing people, and we who are outsiders and have felt like outsiders all our lives who found each other and created goodness and generated wholeness in our own selves need to be ambassadors of that same goodness to people who feel the way we did. And I think there's something right. very powerful about that theme and even more pointed is the conversation she has with Janet on the swing set, which yes. is this beautiful kind of, you know, I know what you're going through. What helps is just talking to somebody. You are not alone. I mean, I don't know. It's a very powerful sort of through line of the movie that, again, occasionally it kind of fumbles what it's going for. But I think when it hits those notes, hits them really well. Yeah, and I think those were probably some of my favorite parts of the movie. I've heard a few people criticize those elements as a bit too sentimental and a bit too uh, too sappy, but that was not my response at all. I, I really responded very positively. I love, I've heard people criticize the note that the film uh, actually goes out on, which is Lorraine and Ed uh, dancing to that to that Elvis song. And, uh, and, oh, I, and very poetic. I loved that. I thought that was great, um, but, but a lot of people thought that that wasn't really, uh, that it was kind of leaned too sentimental and didn't really end the film on a note that belied what had gone earlier. Uh, but I thought that that was, I thought that was absolutely a key theme to what they're creating for these characters and their ongoing journeys and, and missions and, and, uh, and everything that they do. One, one sort of passing note that I had on your skepticism versus belief. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that that haunting specifically, as I said, it's one of the most well-documented. It is proven and admitted that the girls faked at least some of it, um, which they oh, just, wow. br- which they brush over in the film. But that has been admitted by the people who were actually involved that at least some of it was faked, which has led many people to believe that the entire thing was faked. 
Um, sure. but, uh, so, so it's definitely something that they could have explored more. They chose blatantly not to like the film never pretends for longer than a minute that, uh, that, that any of this is not real. Uh, even when the girl faked it, she faked it because of the real thing threatening her to do so. Right. So, so, you know, the film takes a stance that I think it has to take for the horror to be effective and that's that this is not, you know, this is not fake. This is absolutely real. But to your to Well, your and I think point, to, to jump in on what you're saying there is that I, one of the takeaways I have from the movie that I think can be applicable to our conversation about the nature of things spiritual and, and, and not just spiritual, but, you know, perhaps Christ-centered, if you want to use that language, um, you know, regardless of the framework of... The, the Janet character and what she is or isn't faking like the Warrens. And again, ignore what it is they're buying into, but the Warren characters are bought in, you know, yes. and, we're, and we're talking specifically about the context of the movies. Uh, you know, I, like you, I don't have a ton of knowledge of the real folk, but like, I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is when she and Ed get separated, you know, when, when the oh, big yes. climax, we're building to this big climax. And, and again, this is performance and a little bit script, but there there was something palpable about that, like, and and something I find uh, beautiful in the real world, and want to be a practitioner of, like, you know, th- there's so much about faith and about the trappings of the Christian subculture that is so much lip service and so much just junk. That what I want to sort of scream from the hills sometimes is who show me someone who can really put when their backs against the wall can say this is it this is this is what I am staking my life on and that is that a, a goodness can be made real in the world and I can do it through through you know the the sort of teachings and life of uh, of Jesus. Um, but again, as far as the movies itself is concerned, these characters just believe it. And right. there's something about that, regardless of some of the things I don't like about how the movie was executed, that I think they get really well or get really right is like that scene in particular, man, she is so fraught with concern for him right there because she believes everything that she says she believes. And I think that's a lost art in our world, which is as evidenced by the sort of political climate we live in right now, like you say all this stuff, but if you, a, if you actually believe all the stuff you're saying, one, I'm really worried about you because a lot Mm. of what a lot of the world is saying is really negative and really vitriolic, like back off, man, you know, like, like you got to tone down the rhetoric, but B say what you believe and believe what you say and act accordingly. And I think that's the power. And to me, an overarching, the, the greatest theme I take out of that is these characters are just, you know, they're bought in from from their youth as they sort of talk about their stories. And I love it. It could be hokey, as you said, some critics are saying, I love the poetic nature of she tells Janet their story first, you know, and, and guess what I did when I found that person? What? I married him. Yeah. And then 30 minutes later, he's telling the same story. Mm-hmm. And it's just really beautiful. Like I really dug I loved it. that aspect of the movie that you could call hokey. I just say you've done a good job creating these characters who don't just believe in the things they're saying, but believe in each other. And really, when the chips are down, they're going to have each other's back. And it's not, as much as I've used the kind of Scully Mulder analogy with them, 
where they deviate from Scully and Mulder is Scully and Mulder were always foils for each other. Right. Um, you know, one was a believer, one was a skeptic. In Ed and Lorraine, you've got folks who are bought in, dead set. This is how the world operates. We're going to do everything we can to take back and, and impart goodness and restore wholeness where it's needed because we found that in each other. And I think that's a really lovely theme of these movies. Absolutely. And I'll, uh, I, it's so amazing. Well, not necessarily amazing, but I, I really love the fact that where you landed all of that, uh, in terms of, uh, themes that you drew out of it, I had written down uh, a passage of scripture that I did not share with you beforehand. Uh, not that that's that important, but second Corinthians chapter four, verse 13 was one of the, I think you mean two Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I, I actually mean second Corinthians, <laughs> um, but uh, sincerely second Corinthians chapter four and verse 13 says this. Um, and the, when it says in this passage, it is written, it's referring to Psalm 116, but the text says this, it says it is written. I believed. Therefore, I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. So you're talking about, you know, say what you believe, believe what you say, that unity there. Um, it's something that I had written down that I was, de- that was definitely on my mind coming out of the film is, is talking about this whole idea of speaking things into existence and the substance of belief behind what we say, mm-hmm. how deficient that is so often where people do not speak from a perspective of things they genuinely believe. They simply pass on the rhetoric that they've absorbed or that they've heard, but how much substance, especially if you are a person who's trying to fulfill wholeness and fulfill goodness in the world, that the substance of your belief comes out of your mouth. You know, I, I didn't write this scripture down, so I don't quite remember where the chapter and verse is, but uh, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What yep. you what you believe yep. in your in your heart is what will come out of of your mouth and who you are. So what somebody says. Um, it's going to reflect to a degree how they see the world and how they navigate through it. And I think, as we said, you know, there's a, there's a power to what you call things. There's a power to the name that you have associated with things. And I think more so than that, there's a power to verbalizing those things out in the world, to speaking, to speaking the goodness you want to see take place, to speaking that out from, from the depth. And I think it, it, it works in relationship with what you believe. When you speak it, you solidify that. And when you hear it, it solidifies what you believe. And you can bend that in either direction. I would hope that most people, uh, we know that most people don't, but uh, I would hope that most people begin to sort of bend that in the direction of goodness and wholeness. But um, we know that sometimes it works in the opposite way. But regardless of that, I think the principle is true that what you speak enforces what you believe and out of what you believe is what you speak from. Well, and and I, you know, to, to sort of take that one step further, and I know this is, uh, subliminal to what you are saying, and I think would you would not contradict this at all. But I think that to me, the the Warren characters, and we can apply this to the real life. What I'm what I'm sort of arguing is they do speak it, they do believe it. But the true test of a character, whether fictional or in the real, is do you act on that? Yes. And you know, you you make you made the statement a minute ago about you know what you say, like. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things that I want to say, if you believe what you're saying and start acting according to that, I need you to not be a member of society. The problem comes for those of us who we would consider part of, you know, the the universal church in terms of Judeo-Christianity and however you want to nuance that. Like the problem is equally true on the other side of that, which is 
if I can't act accordingly to the things I believe, then there's a problem with my beliefs. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, like if, if, if I can espouse a certain thing and not sort of back it up in the real, that's problematic. And that creates, you know, dissension sort of internally. And I think that's to me, what's fascinating about these characters, whether, whether I'm sure there's conversations sort of on a production level about this stuff, but whether it was intended or not, that was something that was really powerful to me and why something like the dancing scene at the end works just fine is yeah. because these characters have consistently acted out of their belief system and their belief system is we are going to be ambassadors of good in the world, maybe perhaps on a level that most people might not engage, but regardless, the, the, the baseline is there, which is we're going to create good where we can and aid those who need it where we can. And we're going to be at peace for having done so. And I think that's what really makes that story settle in a real positive, nice place for me. Yeah. And I think that, uh, at the risk of being a bit, uh, cheesy, I think that settles this, this conversation in a really nice place for me. (laughs) Um, I think that's a great note to end on. We've, we've obviously talked about a lot of things and, and touched some subjects in, in broad spectrums and some more specifics, but, as we say every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation. And we'd love to continue this conversation with you guys. Um, you can find us in a number of places on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at the Nathan Rouse. And you can also like us on Twitter at uh, the fear of God. And uh, there's a link to like us on Facebook as well there. You can also check out, I don't think we've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but you can also check out um, our, our hosting site, morethanonelesson.com, and there's a podcast there, a weekly podcast. Um, check out those posts and, and leave some comments in these, in these uh, posts for these episodes. Uh, you can also email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And either way, we want to hear from you. Did you like Conjuring 2? Did you? What were some of your favorite scary moments from it? What did you think about some of these themes that Nathan and I sort of took away from it? And how do you feel about those subjects in the world? So either way, we'd really love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us there. And, and uh, next week, we are not entirely certain. We will either be talking about uh, Sinister, uh, which is a 2012 film by Scott Derrickson, or we might be talking about the more recent film, Uh, by Dan Trachtenberg called 10 Cloverfield Lane. Either way, both of those films will be on the docket uh, for the next couple of episodes, so stay tuned for that. And meanwhile, thanks so much again for listening, and Nathan, thanks so much for being part of this conversation with me. Yeah, man, very enjoyable. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast, where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.